Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, and then verses 26 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as a congregation of your priests. This week we've been engaged in taking the gospel out into the world around us. Even when we weren't aware of it, just for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and because of the gospel in our lives and because of the love and joy and peace of the Holy Spirit that emanates from our lives in his power. Our Father, we've been prophets out there telling the world about Christ. Teach us to do that better. Father, draw us close to you, because the closer we are to you, the more light the world will see. But you've also called us to be priests, to come and bring our families before you, our neighbors before you, our fellow workers before you, our friends. And so we come this morning thanking you for how you've answered our prayers how you've blessed. Our Father, we pray for Sophie Miller, who will have surgery this week. We pray that you would protect her, that this surgery would accomplish what it's designed to do, bring healing to her. Our Father, we thank you for the news that we received about Mary Catherine Bailey, that that tumor, that growth was benign. Thank you, Father. We pray that you would bring about just a total healing. We thank you for bringing Leslie Murphy through her surgery this week. And we pray that, Father, the pain would subside and that you would bless her as she goes through rehab. Our Father, we pray for Phil Halley. Oh, Father. Give the doctors wisdom to know what to do. Give Sally, Father, real insight, real discernment in the decisions that she faces. Father, we pray for healing. There's nothing beyond 
nothing beyond your healing power. We, Father, call down that healing power for Phil and for Sally. Now, Father, as we open your word, what a privilege we have. Our Father John Sartell cannot speak cannot preach so it will make any difference in our lives and so once more this morning as always we turn to you and say Father teach us teach us we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts in these next few minutes change us maybe some of us for the first time grow us in Christ We're your children, asking their father to teach us. In Jesus' name, and for his glory, Father, amen. The incomparable incarnation. There's nothing that can compare to it. That's been the subject it's been the subject for the last three weeks. We come to the fourth week. The incomp- incomparable incarnation. But how do we know, how do we know that it is true? In a late night conversation many years ago, I asked a, s- a small group of friends, what question if Christ were here? And you had one question. What question would you ask him about himself, about his gospel? There were several questions that were suggested, but there was one question that went right to the bottom line. A dear friend said, my question to God, my question to Christ would be, is it true Did the Son of God become flesh? Did you really make the blind to see and the paralyzed to walk? Did did you really raise the dead? Did you die an atoning death and walk out of that grave? That would be my question. Is it true? During this Advent season, We've had a laser-like focus on the incarnation. We looked at what the Son of God was doing in glory before his incarnation. Next, we examined why the incarnation, the deity of Christ, why was that a non-negotiable truth in the Gospels? Why? Then we examine the humanity, the beauty of the humanity of the Son of God incarnate, that he was not only truly God, but he was truly man. And how that humanity, the humanity of Jesus, is 
a non-negotiable truth of the gospel. But, same question. How do we know it's true? It is one thing for Jesus and John and Luke to make these claims, but it's another thing for the incarnation to be an actual historical event this morning. How do we know it's true? Now, some few might say, well, why would you ever question it? Why the question? Why does anyone doubt the incarnation? Jesus claimed, claimed to be the Son of God who had become man. Now, anyone, any man walking around on earth making that claim, I'm the Son of God that has come into flesh, what will the world around them do? The world around them will roll their eyes and say, yeah, right, of course you are. Sane people don't make such claims. That's one reason you have the questions. Then there are these angels. Not many people in history have seen angels. I mean, has anyone ever said to you, you know, I was walking in Walmart this evening and this great glorious angel appeared and told me to be sure in church, to go to church on Sunday morning. I mean, no. Yet suddenly in Luke 1 and 2, angels are all over the place. They're integral. They're an integral part of the story. An angel appears to Zechariah. Then that same angel appears to Mary. To Zechariah, he announces a coming birth. And it's miraculous because this couple, they're a retirement age. They're long past childbearing years. And then he announces, this angel announces a birth that will come to a virgin. The Son of God becoming man. Angels, an incredible birth of a child to a man and a woman who are retirement age. And then this virgin conceives. Will we tell our when we tell our neighbors this story, when we tell our culture this story, the culture says, are you kidding me? How do you know it's true? Even Zechariah, think about that. We read it this morning. Even Zechariah, here's the great archangel, Gabriel. And he was there in all of his glory because he had to say to Zachariah, we read that Zechariah was terrified. And this angel had to say, don't be afraid, Zechariah. But do you realize what Zechariah said to him? Look at it. It's verse 18. 
How shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. What's he say? How can I know this is true? Luke, and I, you know, I've got to tell you this. Luke gives us clear answers to our questions. And I really had not seen this in the first two chapters like I have this week. How do we know it's true? Luke gives us three answers. And he means that. This is not twisting the text to say something Luke didn't intend. In reading this chapter this morning and looking at it, I hope you become convinced that these two chapters, and these two chapters, he's not only saying what happened, but he is giving a reasoned argument. It's a polemic. It's an apology for the truth of the gospel. Well, first, the story makes sense. You can know it's true because it's a continuation of an ancient story. The Messiah this Messiah, this gospel, perfectly fulfills all the prophecies that came in the Old Testament. You see, the story of Jesus does not begin in the New Testament. The New Testament does not begin by saying, all right, the story of the Old Testament is over. Forget about it. We're starting a new story about a man named Jesus. Have you ever asked why Luke begins his gospel with the incredible conception of John the baptizer? Why does he begin there? Why didn't he just begin with the birth of Jesus? The angel came to Zechariah before he came to Mary. Why? Look at what the angel says. I want to show you something. Look at what the angel says in verse 16. Look at it. This son that will be born, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's what your son's going to do, Zechariah. Where did the angel get those words? They were based on the very last words of God in the Old Testament. 400 years earlier, God had spoken the last words of the Old Testament. What were those words? It's in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. It's on your scripture sheet. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, when, when Jewish folks read that, 
they would say, and they would put it in everyday language and say, he's going to send a prophet like Elijah before the Messiah comes to prepare the way for the Messiah. Exactly what Isaiah said. Isaiah said this too. But right there it is in Malachi. And what? And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. The angel is quoting that. Now, first, Elijah was not just another prophet in the Old Testament. He was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. The greatest. God says, I'm going to send a prophet the magnitude of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. Do you know that John the baptizer led a revival in Israel like Israel had never seen? Elijah didn't lead a revival. Even Elijah did not lead a revival like John the baptizer. Before Jesus, John the baptizer was the most well-known name and person in Israel. Now, for Jesus to be the Messiah, that's why he comes first. For Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to have a prophet like the great Elijah to go before him. He wouldn't be the Messiah unless there had been a John the baptizer. That's why Luke said it. Oh, people, there are hundreds of prophecies like this. If you're not a believer, if if you're not a believer, if you don't believe Jesus was the Son of God, you don't believe the gospel, the first problem you have are the prophecies of the Old Testament. Micah, where's Jesus to be born? Bethlehem, where's the Messiah to be born? Bethlehem. Remember when the men came from the east and said, where's, where's the Messiah? We know the Messiah of Israel's been born. Where is he? Herod calls together the Jewish scholars, the rabbis. Where's the Messiah to be born? Bethlehem. In Isaiah and Psalms, I wish I could just spend, almost did this, just stop the sermon right here and said for the rest of the time, I'm just going to read you prophecies. Do you know that what happened at Calvary was described in detail in both Psalms and Isaiah? So, here's this passage in Malachi, the end of the, the end of the Old Testament. In the first four verses that Luke begins his gospel, he tells us why he's writing it. He's writing it to a friend named Theophilus. It's the, it's the preface it's the introduction and then he comes down to the gospel he says now let's begin the gospel and what does he do he doesn't talk about the angel and Mary 
He says in the days, verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Luke takes up exactly where the Old Testament leaves off. The very words mentioning John the baptizer. Luke says, okay, it's time to talk about John the baptizer. He had to come before the Messiah. A prophet like unto Elijah. The story makes sense when you see it in that light. You know it's true when you see it in that light. He was saying that the presence and the revival of John the baptizer is evidence of the truth of Jesus being the Son of God come in the flesh because God said that's exactly what was going to happen. Secondly, the angels, let's talk about them. The angels, they make sense. They belong there. Because God the Father and all of heaven is celebrating the birth of his Messiah. This is not really about the celebration of the shepherds. It's not about the celebration of Joseph and Mary. It's about the celebration of heaven. Look at Luke 1.19. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you. I was sent. Do you see that? I was sent to speak to you. To do what? To bring you good news. I want to tell you something. God wants you to know something. God's celebrating something. Look at Luke 1.26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from, a, from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Again, he was sent. God said, go tell Mary. In Luke 2 verse 10. And the angel came to them, said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, the angels, the angels are sent from God. That's what it says throughout the first and second chapter. The word angel simply means messenger. They are envoys of God himself. God is announcing these long-awaited births. What did the angel say to the shepherds? I bring you good news of great joy. This is a celebration. A celebration that originates in heaven. We read in the New Testament, the angels are peering on from heaven in wonder. Folks, this is not unusual. We understand this. This very week, this very single week, I've encountered two different families that have announced, made a made an announcement. There's a baby to be born in our family. And they weren't like us, you know, there's a baby to be born in our family. This is just a terrible thing. They were excited. Actually, the grandparents were more excited than the parents. 
It's usual. That's what we do. And that's just to announce that a baby is going to be born. When that baby is born, you know, people drive from Memphis to California when a baby's born. What are they doing? We don't say, we don't look at them and say, are you nuts? Are you crazy? It's just a baby. (laughs) It's our grandson. (laughs) It's our granddaughter. We'll go to Japan. That's what's happening here. The greatest event. God knows. God the Father knows. This is a great event that has occurred in the universe ever or ever will occur. God didn't remain silent. Heaven didn't remain silent. What, what did, when Jesus started his ministry, it was the same thing. You didn't see an angel that time. He didn't send a message to somewhere else. God spoke from heaven himself. This is my beloved son. Wow. People, the angels make sense. If there were no angels, you would ask, now hold on. If this is the preexistent son from all eternity, and he's coming in the flesh, where are the angels? Where's the supernatural? angels had to be there it's like we've said it before about the miracles of Jesus the world looks at these you know he made the blind to see deaf to hear he did it by fiat just spoke and it happened people say I can't believe that but those very same people if those miracles weren't there what would they be saying they would be saying if you're the son of God make the blind to see Show us a sign. The miracles are not unusual because he's the son of God. It's usual. The angels are not unusual. Folks, one day, you're going to see a whole lot more than Gabriel. One day, the skies over Memphis are going to break wide open. And the Son of God is going to be there in all of his glory. And there's going to be a host of angels you would not believe. So, the story makes sense. It's true because it's a continuation of the ancient story. It's fulfillment of all those prophecies. It's a story. The angels make sense. They belong. Because God the Father is celebrating the conception and birth of his Messiah. And finally, the story makes sense. It's true because it was verified daily by eyewitnesses. Look at this. Luke 1, 1 through 4. 
inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. There's other gospels that have been written of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good for me also, hadn't followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O excellent Theophilus. Why? Why is he writing this? Look at it. This is, that's the subject. That you may have certainty. Look at, the, look at verse 4. That you may have certainty. Theophilus, so you can be sure. So you can know it's true. That's why I'm writing this. As we begin to read this opening paragraph, we must ask ourselves, was Luke writing a mythological story about God's relationship to mankind? Did Luke really mean his account to be read and understood as real space-time history? Or did he mean for the reader to understand that none of this really happened? That he was just writing mythology? Folks, you know the answer to that. He sets the birth and story in the midst of real time history. Now, who was Luke? Luke was Paul's friend, obviously was a Christian. Luke was a medical doctor, we read in Colossians. He was a journalist, historian. He joined Paul, when Paul was in the midst of his second journey to plant churches. Luke was writing a man named Theophilus. He was, Theophilus was acquainted with some teachings of the Christian faith. Luke was writing a detailed story of Jesus so that this man, who was probably a Gentile, would know the certainty of the truths that had been taught. Why is that, why is that so important? Because they were living in an age where it was a very dangerous thing to say that Jesus is the Messiah. Theophilus knew people. Luke knew people. Paul knew people. John knew people. Matthew knew people who were killed for their faith. They were martyred. People don't give up their lives. They don't go through martyrdom over fairy tales. Only fools live and die for what they know is not true. That's what Paul said in Corinthians. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's a whole chapter, long chapter, about the resurrection. And Paul comes down in the middle of that chapter, verses 17 through 19. You know what he says? He says, if Christ is not raised, if this is not factual, if this is not history, if this is not true, we, of all men, are to be pitied more than anyone. So we've rested our lives on something that's not true, on a fairy tale. That's how much of, that's how much of the world looks at us today. They think we're fools. They think we're giving our lives, our time, our money, 
for a fairy tale, for a myth. Our entire education, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, he's home with the Lord now. Incredible intellect, incredible theologian. In one of our first conversations, he became a dear friend. In one of our first conversations, he said, John, your whole education has been based on the premise that if you're going to be educated, if you're going to be a true scholar, you cannot believe the gospel. You cannot believe the Bible. You can't be a true intellectual and believe that the Bible is true. When I was in college, I was having dinner with a businessman in Dallas, Texas. As I was in my early years in college, but I knew that I was going into the ministry. As we talked over dinner, he wanted to know why I was want to be a min. Why I would want to be a minister? He said, "Do you know what you could do?" He said, "I would love having you work for me in business." He said, "Do you know what you could do if you were this or that?" And what he was saying, he was looking at the gospel. He was looking at God's word. He was looking at the Bible and saying it's not true. Only a fool would would do that and give their lives for a fairy tale. That's what he was saying to me. He said it nicely, but that's what he was saying. That's why Luke relates so well to our postmodern culture. We're hearing daily that there's no absolute truth. We're free to create our own truths. And that's the Luke's whole point here. That's what he's saying to Theophilus. There is absolute truth. There's an absolute truth that there's a creator. There's an absolute truth that this creator came in the flesh. And here's the proof of it. How did Luke want us to understand the story he was writing? Look at the words there. It said, you know, ask, did he want us to understand he was writing factual history? He said, this was fulfilled among us. That's a quote. These events happened in our midst. We were eyewitnesses. The Gospel of Luke is a well-studied, accurate account of history. Look at verse 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. There's always going to be skeptics. And sometimes, sometimes, the skeptics get converted. Paul was such a man, one of the great scholars of the Jewish world. He was a skeptic who was converted. Dr. William Ramsey was a scholar and a skeptic. He was born in Scotland in 1852. He died in 1916. He believed the gospel and the book of Acts were second century productions that were filled with error and fabrication. He said so on many occasions. 
He lived his life that way. As an archaeologist, he spent 16 years on digs in that part of the world, believing the whole time that his skepticism would be validated. He was knighted for his work, Sir William Ramsey. He became one of the preeminent researchers of the Roman world, was known worldwide. But at every turn, he had a problem. At every turn, he found Luke's writing to be accurate. He found that archaeology validated, all those digs simply validated what Luke was saying. And he wrote this. Now I'm quoting Sir William Ramsey. I began with a mind unfavorable to it, but more recently, I found myself brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority for the topography, the antiquities, and the society of Asia Minor. I was gradually, it was gradually borne upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. Sir William Ramsey became a follower of Jesus. Well, that's what Luke was saying to his friend Theophilus in the opening of the story. Theophilus, people don't give over their lives and people don't die for myths. Therefore, know for certainty that I'm writing history. These things can be verified by eyewitnesses. Theophilus, I've thoroughly researched these events. The story is accurate. Theophilus, this is for you. You can give your life to this man, Jesus. He is the Messiah of the world. He's the son of God and son of man. You know, if the gospel is a myth. If the gospel is a myth, then I would say with Paul that it would be ridiculous for you to give your life for it. If it's not a myth, then it would be ridiculous not to give your life for it. Luke not only wrote this gospel, he staked his life on it. Years later, Paul was in prison in Rome. He wrote one last letter to Timothy, telling Timothy to come to Rome as quickly as possible. His execution was near, and he wanted to see Timothy one more time before he was executed. In 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 11. In verse 9, he said, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. And then these precious words in verse 11. He's in Rome. He's in prison. 
in the grip of Caesar. And he says, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Amen. Our hymn is a great, great hymn of celebration. And got to the end, near the end of writing this. I said, there's only one song to sing. Hark, the herald angels sing. Hymn number 203. Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.